At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I would say to those disbelievers, hey, let's go ice fishing January 1st. I want you to walk ahead of me and test the ice. They'll take care of that problem. <laughs> they'll get 50 feet out and they'll have to swim. <laughs> It's reality. If you can't look out the window and see that there's been a big change, then you're not an outdoorsman. Anybody that has spent any time outdoors over the last 20 or 25 years has got to witness the change or you're just not paying attention. Come on. Climate change. Those two words are becoming more present every day, even to those of us who prefer the peace and quiet of a morning on the water or the excitement of a bugle piercing crisp fall air but we begin to notice that things are a bit off. When wildfires still rage during rifle season, or western rivers have permanent afternoon fishing closures every summer, or when more frequent and more powerful hurricanes continue to ravage waterfowl paradise in the southeast, something just ain't right, and we know it. Our sporting traditions are threatened, threatened in a way we can't ignore, threatened in a way that could severely alter our way of life. So. Shall we sit and watch our hunt slide away, our family fishing trips deteriorate into a lesser version of the glory days, and our cherished Octobers and Novembers drift into something we can only reminisce about? That's really not an option. Our option is to get active, use our knowledge, and tell our stories. Tell the world that our sporting lives are worth saving and that there's plenty left worth fighting for. We start now. We start by telling our stories. This is... Vanishing Seasons, Climate Chronicles from the Field. New Hampshire, the verdant, forested land of hardy northern outdoors people, abundant wildlife, and a culture steeped in hunting and fishing traditions. Moose, white-tailed deer, bear, and native brook trout are centerpieces of New Hampshire sporting life, along with several species of ocean-dwelling fish. But like many other locales we speak about on vanishing seasons, climate change has not spared New Hampshire, or the fish and wildlife that call it home. New Hampshire is seeing shorter winters, more wildlife disease, different ice and snow patterns, and other strange occurrences that just weren't happening not too long ago. For those who have lived in a state for long enough to know, they say changes are dramatic, and that they are reducing sporting opportunities. Eric Orff is one such fella. He has spent a life hunting and fishing New Hampshire's woods and waters, and interacted with wildlife professionally during his 30-plus year career with the New Hampshire Fishing Game Department. 
Lucky for me, uh, when I, we moved to New Hampshire when I was 12, there was a, a marsh right out behind the house called Little Cohass Marsh. And I discovered these wood duck nesting boxes there. And it was about that time, 1964, when I was 14, that I took the hunter safety course. My brother was going, and I begged him to let me go, and I did. And, God, I fell in love with the club members. The Leonardary Fishing Game Club were the instructors. And soon after, uh, at age 14, I joined the Leonardary Fishing Game Club as a junior member and convinced them to, to that winter to buy some lumber for me. And I built another dozen duck boxes and put them out in Little Coas Marsh and elsewhere in town instead of checking them. So these are the boxes that our local hooded megansers and, and wood ducks nest in each, each spring and started checking that. And uh, fast forward 40 years to when I'm a wildlife biologist for the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department, what was one of my assigned duties? Check the duck boxes at Little Cohass Marsh. <laughs> I came full circle and uh, had a uh, you know a thirty plus year career as a wildlife biologist. But it was really the the fishing game club that mentored me. You know, I, I was fishing at age four and hunting by age twelve or thirteen. Uh, so I have been a lifelong hunter and fisherman. Trapped a little bit, not a lot. Uh, some I was did mostly some nuisance trapping later in life, and uh, so I've been connected to the outdoors my entire life, either as a fisherman or as a hunter, or and a little bit as a trapper. But also as uh, started out actually at the fishing game department in the fall of 1976 as a fisheries technician. Then within a couple of years, I became a fisheries biologist and moved on to be a wildlife biologist. In 1978, I was the New Hampshire Fishing Game Department's first black bear biologist beginning in October of 1978 and uh, was that for more than two decades during my career. So over my career, yes, I caught, you know, a couple dozen or more bears and handled over 40 moose and uh, caught and banded thousands of ducks and geese and, well, that was my job. <laughs> I loved it from day one till, you know, at age uh, you know, late late fifties. I thought, well, maybe you know, wrestling bears and moose. Maybe I should leave it to somebody younger. And uh, and uh, I did retire some fourteen years ago now. But uh, loved my job from day one until uh, the day I left and got to experience wildlife firsthand. I mean, to you know, to tranquilize a moose and and to be kneeling next to it when you actually give it a drug that wakes it up within 30 seconds or a minute and it stands up and walks through the forest without making a sound (laughs) with a huge rack hanging off. (laughs) It's just being intimate with wildlife my whole career and as a hunter and fisherman, you know, studying wildlife, learning how to, you know, catch bass or catch trout and, uh, and be a successful hunter in, in, in many ways. Eric has more direct experience with wildlife than about anyone you can imagine. He knows definitively when things are going well for species like moose or bear or waterfowl. And he knows when something isn't right. Climate-induced changes are certainly beginning to throw things off in New Hampshire, and Eric has documented these changes. He has seen firsthand what the scientists are saying. Things like the ice melting sooner and not being as thick across New Hampshire waters. He has seen the effects of extreme warming in the Gulf of Maine. Over the past 15 years, the Gulf of Maine, right off the coast of New Hampshire, has warmed seven times faster than the rest of the ocean. The change has been sudden 
and very real for the ice fishermen who used to fish the Great Bay on New Hampshire's coast. Well, let's talk about some of the things you've observed over over the, your time as a as a biologist in the New Hampshire fishing game. And first, we'll talk about freeze up and ice fishing. You've seen a lot of changes there, you know, in the seasons. And, you know, obviously the upper northeast is is huge for ice fishing, always has been. A lot of folks ice fish up there. And let's just jump into your personal experiences and, and tell me about what you've seen over your career. Yeah, there's actually a, a couple of ways to approach this. I think one is uh, if we went back to Little Coas Marsh for a second, uh, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, we had long winters with deep snow. And as I mentioned, uh, my assigned duties in the, the mid 80s was to check the duck boxes that get in Little Coas Marsh. So the first decade or so from the mid 80s to the early 90s, I could use a snow machine every year to go around Little Coas Marsh. Well, then the snow kind of went away, and we had uh, we had three wheelers actually at the time, so I could take my three wheeler. And this is a marsh; it's several hundred acres, so you got to get around. So I would take the three wheelers, and then after a while, when I kept dropping that through the ice in the late you know, mid to late 90s, I just went on foot. And uh, the last year, that the last winter of uh, 2007, that I was to check the duck boxes in Little Coas Marsh on the ice. There was never any safe ice. So in my lifetime, I have seen the ice disappear in New Hampshire. Now, not every winter, but the anomaly is, has become the normal. Now, as far as ice fishing, I mean, when I grew up, we could be ice fishing on or before Christmas. You, know, you get some ice fishing equipment for Christmas, you go out the next day ice fish. Now, there's almost never any safe ice until well into January. And on the coast, it's even worse. Great Bay is an inland sea kind of of several thousand acres that has uh, a, a, you know, a tide, so it's uh, brackish water, and has had a winter fishing of smelt. Smelt are a small oh, eight or ten inch uh, fish that's very good to eat. And there used to be villages of dozens, if not hundreds, of bob houses on Great Bay and the tributaries in the Great Bay every winter. You know, I went to school uh, and lived in right next to one of those winters, uh, those rivers in the early 70s. And, uh, you know, each winter there would be dozens of bob houses uh, for ice fishermen to catch smelt on those rivers flowing into Great Bay, let alone on Great Bay itself. In fact, also, uh, beginning in 1988, I began doing what's called the Midwinter Survey for Fishing Game. It had been conducted since the early 50s where, uh, the first week or two in January up and down the Atlantic coast, uh, all the waterfowl biologists or their chosen designee, which happened to be me, flies for a day or so and counts the ducks and geese. Well, I can tell you when I first started flying in the late 80s, you could look down and see those dozens, if not hundreds, of bobhouses on Great Bay. Now there are none. There is no safe ice to put bobhouses on Great Bay anymore. And this tremendous fisheries of smelt fishing for two or three months each winter has vanished in my lifetime. And I have witnessed that. Inland, same thing. As I mentioned, I used to be able to go ice fishing by late December, almost anywhere across New Hampshire. Now it's pushed into January. <laughs> the sad thing with that is, as a wildlife biologist, I've always learned that some of the best information you want to get is at the local sports shop because they, you know, they, they, they have all these sportsmen coming through. And it was so sad by, you know, in March to go into one of these sports shops and see stacks 
of ice fishing gear unsold because that winter there was no safe ice. Moose are one of the most iconic North American species. Most hunters dream of the chance to harvest this magnificent creature. One might think these critters, that can handle below zero weather and deep snows, and can swim miles across lakes to utilize new habitat, would be immune to climate change. Unfortunately, that is far from the truth. Moose are highly susceptible to warm temperatures due to their thick coats and low surface-to-volume ratios. At temperatures above 57 degrees Fahrenheit, they start to become stressed. With much of the North Woods and New Hampshire seeing temperatures well above 57 degrees, we can expect moose will have a tough time. Add that to the fact that parasites and other diseases can persist longer and proliferate much easier in warmer temperatures and when there is not snow on the ground, and the outlook doesn't look pretty for moose. In your neck of the woods, and, and especially with your area of expertise, moose is a hot topic. You know, I think a lot of people, most people have heard about moose, about ticks, about other diseases that moose are experiencing and, and, and up there in the Northeast, you know, has been always known as a, as a big moose place. And you obviously, with your firsthand experience, would know as well as anyone, you know, tell us a little bit about that. What have you seen with moose o- over your career? You know, I actually watched the, the moose come in like an incoming tide and then go out like an outgoing tide and during my 40 years of experience here. You know, early on, certainly moose numbers were the best in northern New Hampshire. But in the 80s, that number began to really tick up uh, considerably uh, because of uh, several factors. Uh, you know, the, the, the cutting that was going on and, and, and moose were on rebound. I mean, moose were essentially gone in New Hampshire by the early 1900s and probably fewer than 50 during the 40s, but they really picked up during the late 70s and 80s. And funny, it would, for a few years there, you'd, you know, a moose would be here in central New Hampshire, would show up, and from the reports, I could get, oh, well, that moose showed up in this town and went to that town. So, But after a while, moose became statewide, and so did the moose hunting season. So the first season was in 1988, when only 75 permits were issued by the fishing game department. But within uh, two decades, you know, or less than that, a little over a decade, the moose numbers kept going up, and so did the number of permits. It peaked around 2000 when the state estimated about 7,500 moose in New Hampshire. And that year, 750 moose hunting permits were issued. So great for the, the guides. Again, economic. Up north, we have all these guides and, and all these uh, small towns that depend on the hunting crowd to you know, fill in the gap after the summer. People are gone in their lodges and cottages, and they were filled with moose hunters for, a, you know, for about a decade. Well, the moose numbers begin taking a tumble. And basically with moose, it's in the northern New Hampshire, it's primary, it's called the winter tick. So the winter tick gets on the moose in November, typically, and they get on in numbers. I'm talking tens of thousands, and they quest to get on the moose. But if there's snow on the ground, the success of them getting on a moose is vastly d- diminished. So whatever number gets on the moose in November stays on them and kind of changes their body form, I think, three times over the winter. And come April, 
They're ready to drop off and the females drop off and lay their eggs. If they drop off on snow, then the eggs don't do so well. So it's not how cold the winter is. is. People say, oh, it's 40 below zero today up in Pittsburgh. The, the, this is going to kill the ticks. No, in the wintertime, the ticks go on the moose. It's like going to the Caribbean for the winter. They're at 100 degrees 24-7. Cold does not bother them. It's the length of winter. you got to have snow on the ground in northern New Hampshire in November when the ticks are want to get on the moose. And you got to have snow in April when the females are dropping off laying their eggs. And it was, you know, once every five or eight years, you'd have a winter that was conducive to allowing ticks. But the majority of winters were not like that. We've had a reciprocal of that. Now, most winters are favorable for the winter ticks. And uh, the moose biologists here in New Hampshire and Vermont over the last decade have put radio collars on the moose in, in January and determined the mortality rate. Many winters, the mortality rate of the calves born the previous spring is 60 or 70%. So they're not surviving. So our moose have taken a tumble from 7,500 in 2000 to probably fewer than 3,000 a day. And this hunting season come mid-October, 40 permits are issued for moose, a 95% reduction in moose hunting permits in New Hampshire. Uh, the same has happened in Vermont and Maine and, and across the, you know, the southern range of the moose across the northern United States. So it's not just New Hampshire, it's all the moose range that is being impacted by these shorter winters and higher mortality rates from winter tick. So uh, our moose are going, they're going to be gone in, in another decade or 20 years, given the current mortality rates of our calves. And also the summers have been warmer, so the females don't feed as much. When I, you know, when I captured or, or, or tranquilized those 17 moose in 1980. Six, uh, we found that most females were producing, older females older than age two were producing two calves a year, and almost all of them produced the calves. The most recent moose study shows that no, almost no females are producing twins anymore, and more than half the females are not producing any calves because of the warmer summers, and when it's above 70, they don't feed very much, so they're not putting on the weight over the summertime that they need to successfully produce a calf that next winter. So it's really killing off the the calves born the previous spring, upwards of 70% of them, and the females are no longer producing the number of moose that they did 25 years ago. So it's kind of a double whammy on our moose right now and something I have witnessed. And I think one of the most kind of poignant parts of this is when the average Joe or Jane sports person realizes that, you know, this isn't, this isn't like a story anymore. This is a thing that is actually hitting me. And I think, I mean, even when you're seeing it, you kind of don't want it to be that. So you, your natural inclination is to, you know, go, maybe it's something else. You know, how, how is it when, when you, when you talk with your, with your colleagues or that community, what are, how do those stories develop? You know, are they, are they hoping it's not, are they just kind of outright talking about it? How are they, how are they talking through that, you know, around the campfire? You know, it's it certainly, there are the naysayer. There's absolutely no question about it. I mean, we know our hunters and fishermen are the conservative lot. Yes, we are. And uh, it takes a little more persuasion, but 
the moose was a pretty good tool here in New Hampshire. It's sad, it's so sad it is that it's that has happened. It has certainly shifted the paradigm here in New Hampshire for a lot of people in the state, including sportsmen. So, uh, you know, they just they don't deny that it's happening, and they uh, are not as reluctant to uh, to blame it on something else uh, anymore. So. In New Hampshire, a lot of people have come around, and unfortunately, it's taken the demise of the moose to move to sh- to make that shift happen. And of course, we see it in other species. I mean, our I'm I'm, I'm a brook trout fisherman. We have native uh, brook trout here in three, well, four out of the last five winters: 2016, 2018, 2020, and 21, 2021 until July, until we had the deluge. Our brooks. You know, these are brooks that have native brook trout that you can, some of them you can jump across. Most of them are a little bit wider than that. But those four years, the brooks completely dried up. You could walk up a brook with sneakers and not get wet. So in my mind, that had devastated our native brook trout. Uh, And, uh, you know, will they come back? Maybe. And uh, I don't know, there's so, so many different species are being impacted by this change in our environment. Climate scientists tell us that a warming planet will behave in many different ways, and that many of those ways will not simply be hotter temperatures. Extreme weather events are predicted to increase, and we are already seeing some of those impacts in the Northeast and beyond. Average annual precipitation in the Northeast increased 10% from 1895 to 2011, and precipitation from extremely heavy storms, meaning large singular rain events, has increased 70% just since 1958. At the very same time, drought has increased and hotter temperatures are becoming more of the norm. If there's one thing we know for sure, it's that events will be more powerful and more unpredictable. Oh, we've had hot summers and dry summers, you know, over my lifetime, you know, the 60 years here living in New Hampshire, but we don't have them every other year. <laughs> now we've got a drought. You know, we either have a drought or a deluge. So we have a, we had a you know a drought in well started a year and a half ago, and it went through the month of June. So we were you know very little snow last winter compared to normal. Then the, the brooks again were very low and and dried up, uh, and then we got the deluge in in July of I think 17 inches of rain here, the the wettest July on record uh, here in New Hampshire, the second wettest month ever since the late 1800s when. Uh, or mid 1800s when records were kept. So, you know, we're seeing these dramatic changes over a short period of time. I'm glad you said that because one of the things that the climate science tells us is that it won't necessarily just be hotter all the time. Um, it will be more extreme events. The, the ambient temperature on the planet is warmer, but that manifests in different ways across the planet and with different weather cycles. And, and extreme events are, are predicted to be more of the norm. And we're seeing that with hurricanes, with flooding, with more extreme drought, the kind of thing we saw this year in the Northwest with all-time record temperatures right along the ocean in the Northwest, um, which follows what the climate scientist tells us are going to happen. So uh, I, I'm only saying that because I want folks to make a little bit of a distinction between, you know, an actual weather event, and then the pattern of weather events and how those things happen over time. Well, let me ask you this. 
what would you say to people who said, you know, climate change isn't real or that we don't need to take aggressive action to combat climate change? You know, other hunters and anglers, what would you say to those folks? I would say to those disbelievers, hey, let's go ice fishing January 1st. I want you to walk ahead of me and test the ice. They'll take care of that problem. <laughs> they'll get they'll get fifty feet out and they'll have to swim. <laughs> it's reality. I mean, if if you can't look out the window and see that there's been a big change, then you're not an outdoorsman. Anybody that has spent any time outdoors over the last twenty or twenty five years has got to witness the change, or you're just not paying attention. During New Hampshire's legislative session in early 2021, the legislature considered a bill that would require the state to achieve net zero emissions by the year 2050. While this would certainly be a step in the right direction, we also need aggressive actions that will combat the current impacts. These actions can include things like restoring forests to better absorb heat, restoring degraded streams and wetlands to slow floodwaters and improve fish and wildlife habitat and rebuilding infrastructure to handle more extreme events. Without aggressive actions, species like moose and brook trout may be a thing of the past for New Hampshire in the future. Climate change has undoubtedly crept into our sporting lives. Like many other times in the past, hunters and anglers need to step up and put their excellent field knowledge to work. To honor the past work of the millions of dedicated wildlife and conservation advocates who have come before us and made sure we had abundant fish and wildlife to pursue and enjoy, we too must be diligent in our efforts. Conservation in this time, with these issues, now must include working on climate change. We must double down, use our time wisely, and get educated. We need to be able to walk into a decision maker's office, tell them our stories from the field, and then tell them of the actions we want to see. What else do you want to tell other hunters and anglers about climate change? Well, in my lifetime of experience as an outdoorsman, a hunter, a fisherman, a wildlife biologist, that, you know, I have witnessed the change in my lifetime, and it's real. It's going on now, and, you know, it's long past the time that we be more aggressive at addressing the issues that we face today with a warming a warming world, a warming New Hampshire that's impacting the way we hunt and fish, and the economy. New Hampshire and so many places rely on the economy of us sportsmen, hunters, and fishermen. And we need to double down and do more and do it sooner to address the changes that we're all seeing. This is Aaron Kindle, and this has been Vanishing Seasons, Climate Chronicles from the Field. Original music written and performed by Keenan Koppel. Audio production by Mandela Van Eden. Writing by Aaron Kindle. A huge thanks to Eric Orff for his time and dedication to our fish and wildlife resources. Go fight for the forests and waters of New Hampshire. For the high country of the West. Go defend the Great Lakes and the Mississippi River. Go to work for the salmon of the Northwest and the waterfowl in Alaska's tundra. All of these places and species we know and love are threatened by climate change. Ask yourself today what you will do to ensure they remain healthy, productive, and ready to support the next generation's sporting pursuits. Denying that for them would be nothing short of tragedy. 
figure out how you can help, and then set out tomorrow to get moving. Our sporting lives depend on it. For more information, visit nwf.org backslash game changer. This has been a production of NWF Outdoors.